doctrinally sound <laughs> in the next 45 minutes. <laughs> so um, before we go any further, let me, uh, let me pray and let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word and that we get to be here together to um, study it, to learn what you have to say to us, to be impacted by your word, to take away what you have for us. And so we ask for your blessing this morning as we do that. I pray that you would help me to um, um, persevere and, and uh, communicate well uh, what is in uh, your word, what is in particularly this passage. I pray that you would help us all to be receptive to what you have for us. May we not be distracted by the funny sound of my voice or uh, anything else in our lives, but may we be focused on you and what you have. So, Father, we ask for your blessing on this time. We trust that you will be honored and glorified as you speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, if you would. Acts chapter 1, and we're going to pick up where we left off and finish the chapter today. And I'm going to uh, read that to us before we get to it. Uh, When I first opened up and started studying this passage for today's message, I was was kind of thinking, wow, what's here? And it seems like it's sort of a transition between this very important stuff and then this very important stuff. And it seemed like filler at first, and I was wrong, as you might imagine. Actually, there are three very good sermons that could come out of this passage, but I won't preach them all today. I'll I'll try to stick to just one. So... um, but uh, this, is a, this is a powerful passage in Scripture. So Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldamah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So that is our passage for the day. That is God's Word. And as I was studying this, I was struck by several things. Of course, when you're reading the end of Acts chapter 1, you're thinking forward to Acts chapter 2 because that's when the fireworks happen and that's when big and glorious things happen with, with Pentecost. And, and this seems like a kind of a preparation sort of passage. And, and, um, and in, in many senses, it is a preparation sort of passage, but that doesn't mean, therefore, that it's irrelevant. It doesn't mean that it means nothing. In fact, it uh, has a lot to communicate to us, and so I hope to get to that today. 
First of all, as we, as we start looking at it right off the bat, we see that, that uh, a, a leader appears, right? If you remember Peter, we're going to be talking about Peter, and here he resumes leadership. And in our Sunday school class this morning, we were looking in Luke chapter 22, and we saw that in that passage, Peter had blown it big time. And he had denied the Lord three times against his very strong, uh, you know, statements that he, of course, wouldn't do that. And he, of course, would, would, uh, was be, you know, willing to be arrested with Jesus and go to jail and, and even face death. And, of course, we see that uh, when, when the time actually came, he denied the Lord three times. And, uh, and the, he went away and wept bitterly. And so that's almost the last we see of Peter in Luke's account. And so we see Peter weeping bitterly because he has denied his Lord. And so we see that here in our passage, Peter appears again. We just heard his, his name mentioned briefly previously, but here we have in our passage that he resumes his leadership. So they, they were, uh, spending time in Jerusalem, waiting for the promised Holy Spirit to come. And during that time they were praying. We saw in, in last week's message, they were praying, they were together and they were preparing for, you know, the Holy Spirit to come. But apparently during that time, they were also studying scripture because during that time you have Peter stand up as the leader of the group and not just the leader of the 12, but they were about 120 people and he stood up and he addressed them. And so we have him taking back a position of leadership. And uh, lest we think that his denial of the Lord was really no big deal and just kind of blip in the road, it's one of the few events that all four gospels talk about, his denial of the Lord. They all talk about it. It was a big deal. Here you have Peter who's the leader. He's the strength of the community. He's the backbone and he denied the Lord. And so it's a big deal for him to have done that, big enough deal that they all talked about it. And we see that he is back in that leadership position. He has resumed leadership. And you can tell that his leadership is sort of improved already by the fact that, uh, that he is emphasizing Scripture. So right off the bat, this is something you see him doing. They had been told to wait in Jerusalem and, and that the promised Holy Spirit would come and, and uh, would empower them to do their ministry, to be witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that was going to happen. And in order to do that, they were kind of, uh, you know, in, during that waiting process, they were thinking through and reading through Scripture and studying. And they were trying to think about one thing in particular, and that's that Jesus had appointed 12 and now there were only 11. And the problem, the main problem was not that Judas had died. The main problem was that he had abandoned the Lord. He had gone away. He had apostatized. And so he was no longer one of their number. And so what were they going to do? Jesus had appointed 12. Should there only be 11? There should probably be 12. And so as they were reading scripture and studying through it, they came to this passage, uh, two different passages in the book of Psalms, where we read there in verse 20, it's written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. And so as they were studying through, they saw that, that there, was, there was prophetic mention of what happened in Judas' case. And so there's also prophetic mention of what should be done in Judas', uh, Judas case, and that is that let another take his office. So there was supposed to be someone appointed. And so we see that Peter has resumed leadership, and now he's emphasizing Scripture, and he's also obeying Scripture. That's the next thing that they do there. They were told from Scripture to let another take his office, and so that's what they did. They were going to obey and, and do what was said there. And so 
while they're waiting for the promised Holy Spirit, they weren't just twiddling their thumbs and they weren't just wondering what was going to happen and they weren't, weren't just commiserating or anything. They, they were studying God's word. They were praying and they were together to prepare for uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so they were obeying scripture at the same time. So you see that a leader has appeared. You also see that there's a witness appointed. And this is a big and powerful part of this passage right here. The fact that another witness gets appointed. Before we jump to that, though, I want to ask the question, how did Judas die? How did Judas die? You see in our passage there that it says in verse 18 and 19, now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. That's pretty vivid. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akel Damah, that is a field of blood. Well, I ask, how did he die? Because there's another passage that talks about the death of Judas, and that's over in Matthew chapter 27. And so if you could keep one finger in Acts chapter 1 and flip over to Matthew chapter 27 and verses 3 through 10 is where we're going to be looking very briefly. You see another account from Matthew's perspective of what happened in Judas's case such that he died. You see, we have gory details in Acts chapter 1, but, and, and we have an explanation given of how the field was purchased and how it got its name, and we see a slightly different account in Matthew chapter 27. Now, we know that in, uh, in, in the Gospels particularly, which are four different um, accounts of the life of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, and including this part of the book of Acts, we see that there's perspective given, different perspective on the same events. And if you have read more than one gospel, you know that sometimes that perspective seems a little different. Just like your perspective of what happened today might be different from the perspective of another person uh, of what happened today. The descriptions are different and sometimes it's not a big deal at all. It causes no consternation. This one I don't think is a huge deal either, but I've had it brought to my attention, particularly by LDS missionaries or other LDS friends who want to uh, use this as evidence that we can't really rely on the Bible. See, because we have two very different accounts of what happened at the death of Judas. They can't both be right, so there's got to be a problem with the Bible. That's the conclusion. And so other critics of the Bible will come to the same conclusion and make the same argument from this passage and from others. And so how do we think about this? How did Judas die? Well, if you think back to Matthew chapter 27, I'm going to read verses 3 through 10 and get Matthew's perspective, and you'll see that some of the events are different, described differently. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what's that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests taking the pieces of silver said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price on him, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. And so you have that account in Matthew chapter 27, which of course sounds different, reads differently than what we have in Acts chapter 1. So what do we do? What do we do with that? Well, I think a couple of things need to be discussed. Uh, we have the first question there, which is, has to do with the 30 pieces of silver, 
right? That in Matthew, you see that he brought the 30 pieces of silver back, tried to give them back to the priests, and the priests said, uh, we can't put this in the coffers, and so they, it's blood money, we can't keep it. So, let, so they went and did a charitable thing, and they bought this field, and the field became known as the field of blood. Is that different from what we have in Acts chapter 1, where we read that he, what does it say in Acts 1.18? It says very simply, actually it's 19, it became known, uh, no, I'm sorry, verse 18, now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. So did he go and buy a field with it, or did he give the money to someone else, and then they did something with it? Well, I think in, in this case, it's, it's relatively easy for us to understand that if he had returned the money to the temple and they hadn't wanted it, they couldn't keep it because it was blood money, they needed to do something with it. They were religious leaders, so they went and they bought, uh, charitably bought this field uh, for this other purpose. You could see that even though that money was bought not specifically with his money, he didn't go and sign the deed, that nevertheless it was his money that had been used to purchase a field that would have been associated with him thereafter. So that it would be named after him. Yeah, that's, that's the field that, you know, J- Judas acquired that, right, with the wages of his iniquity kind of thing. And so you could see how, uh, without too much um, difficulty, we could see how those two things might both be true at the same time. So that's a potential explanation, but, but uh, and I don't know if that's exactly how it happened, but that points out that we don't have an actual contradiction in these two passages. We just have two different ways of describing maybe the same events. But I think the more difficult one, has to do with his death itself. You see, in Matthew chapter 27, we read about his death that he went and hanged himself. Pretty simple, right? Simple, straightforward. He went and hanged himself. And so um, when we read in Acts chapter 1, we see all kinds of gory details, right? That he, he fell forward and his innards, you know, his, his bowels gushed out. He split open in the middle and his bowels gushed out. And so we have those kind of gory details that are a little more color than, than I really um, care to think about too much. But the point is, we seem to have two different kind of explanations. So which was it? And I think we have a couple of different ways that we can understand this passage. One of them is probably the most common of this situation, and that is that he hanged himself with a rope, and then after a period of time, the rope broke because it was weak or it weakened over time or whatever, and his body had decayed to the point that when he fell, it was, it was ugly. Well, that's a potential but there's, there's one problem in that potential description, and that is that in this time period, when someone hanged himself it, or was hanged, it wasn't with a rope. He was hanged on a tree, meaning he was stuck on a pole. He was either impaled on a pole or he was, you know, Jesus died on the tree, right? So that's a tree. So that idea of a pole is, is kind of what's going on there. And so when... When uh, we read about this situation, we read about the fact that he hanged himself. If we think about how they would have used the language, how they would have described hanging himself, if, if it had been hanging with a rope, they, he probably would have said he hanged himself with a rope because that would have been unusual. In our day and age, if we say someone hanged himself, we kind of get the idea. Because we have an accepted way that we think about it, that may, uh, may not necessarily, doesn't seem like it was the case during this time. And so we have a little bit more of a you know, a picture of maybe him impaling himself, kind of like you have Saul at the end of his life. What did he do? He fell upon his own sword, impaled himself. And so it seems like maybe Judas did a similar kind of thing. And, it, and you can imagine that if he, if he f- 
you know, impaled himself in that way that that would necessarily involve the other descriptions that we have in Acts chapter 1 that are a little bit more gory. And so I think that's uh, um, a possible explanation. I think that's more likely than the rope explanation. But either way, you can see that when, when you read the two, not as if they are competing accounts, but if you read them over the top of one another to see how one might explain the wording of the other, you can see that actually we don't have a contradiction here. You have uh, two different descriptions that are serving two different purposes of explaining the same events that happened there. So regardless of how we explain it, we can see that we don't have an actual contradiction in the way that Judas died and the whole situation with the field. It's not, it's not super straightforward, but, but if you think about it in terms of competing descriptions for, competing for, for different purposes, it, it makes sense for us. But that's all about how Judas died. But the fact is, Judas did die after having abandoned the faith. And so uh, the apostles and, and the 120 come to the conclusion they need to replace him. And so they come up with certain criteria for uh, replacing Judas amongst the 12. And one of those criterion, uh, criteria, the first one we read, is there in 21 and through the beginning of 22. So one of the men who have accompanied us, accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. And then it continues, right? So we have what, what is the first criterion, and that is he had to be a companion of Jesus from the day of the baptism of John, from the earliest days of Jesus', Jesus ministry, someone who was with Jesus in one of his number from that time until later on. So all the time he went in and out among us. So all the time he was on earth relating to us, that's, that's the first of the criteria there in order for someone to be named among the 12. So it couldn't just be anyone. You know, this guy, you know, he got saved, uh, you know, a year ago, and he's a really great teacher. We'd love for him to be one of the apostles. It wasn't going to cut it as one of the 12. He had to have been with Jesus going in and going out during that time. But more than that, he also had to be a witness of the resurrection. Look at the second half of 22 there. Um, so beginning, uh, with the baptism of Jesus, uh, excuse me, the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So you have a second criterion here, and that is that he had to have been a witness of the resurrection. So he had to have seen the the risen Jesus and be able to talk about the fact that, yeah, I saw him. I had dinner with him. I touched him. I put my hand in his side. He was a witness of the resurrection. I sat under his teaching during his 40-day ministry on this earth after he was raised. He had to be one of those numbers. And so he had to have been with Jesus going in and out uh, all during his ministry. He had to be a witness of the resurrection. And then finally, he had to be appointed by God. He had to be appointed by God. You see that he wasn't elected. He wasn't elected. As in, you know, the 11 of us think that you're the best bet and so you made the cut. That's not the way it is. There are certain criteria, but you see that in the end, it's left up to the Lord to make that decision. And you see in their prayer there in uh, verse 24, how they leave it up to the Lord, right? They prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Because they had looked at the criteria and they had come up with two candidates. You've got one guy who has three names and then you've got another guy, Matthias, right? And so, um, but they had come up with these guys that they meet those, those criteria. And so we're going we're gonna to set these two candidates before the Lord. And they prayed and said, Lord, you're the one who knows the hearts. And you were the one who got to choose the first 12, 
That was Jesus' choice, and so we're going to leave this choice up to you as well. These men meet the, the criteria, but we're going to leave that final choice up to you. And so they, they did that, and they left that choice up to Jesus, and they cast lots. They rolled the dice, or they flipped the coin. They left it up to chance, which seems very weird to us, but it doesn't in the sense that chance doesn't exist. Particularly if you're thinking biblically, there's no such thing as chance. Uh, you think of, of uh, what the Proverbs say, that the, uh, the lot is cast in the lap, but every answer is from the Lord. So it was, a, it was an accepted way of determining what the Lord's will was in, partic- in particular circumstances, that they would cast lots for, uh, for that to find out um, who actually was the one, 16.11, that is, Proverbs 16.11. The lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so they're thinking biblically, right? And they're thinking, we want to leave this choice up to the Lord. And so they do that. And of course, the lot falls to Matthias. And Matthias ends up being the one who is named, not elected. He's selected by God to be the 12th uh, apostle, to be uh, one with the 12 and join them. And so you have him uh, joining that group. A couple things I want to say about this this uh, the uh, choosing of the apostles, just a couple of asides, and this could be an entire sermon by itself. Uh, but one of them is that if you think about these these criteria, what important person do they exclude? Paul. Paul wasn't a follower of Jesus from the earliest days. He didn't go in and out um, uh, among them. He he wasn't with Jesus from the baptism uh, of John until until the end, and so. Paul himself would be excluded from being one of the 12. He doesn't meet the criteria. And it could be argued whether he was a witness of the resurrection. Of course, the risen Lord appeared to, G- to, uh, to Paul and talked to him face to face. And so in a sense, maybe he meets that criterion, maybe not. Um, but he certainly does not meet the first. And so uh, you have even Paul being excluded. So does that cause a problem? I mean, Paul wrote half of your New Testament. Is that going to be a problem? Well, I don't, I don't think it is a problem. And even from Luke's perspective is writing the book of Acts, right? Luke is the historian. He's the one writing. He's also a theologian. And, and if you have read through the book of Acts, and I encourage you again to do that, you will find it three times in excruciating detail. You will find descriptions of Paul's conversion and Paul's call into ministry. It's a common theme and takes up a lot of verses. It's a very big deal. It's a very important thing in, uh, in Luke's presentation of the history of the early, early church. And the reason is because by doing so, God is demonstrating that Paul is my chosen servant to be an apostle. He's not among the twelve. And he would actually, Paul would actually refer to himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he refers to himself as one untimely born, right? That I, I joined late is what he's saying. I am an apostle because of the fact that Jesus himself appeared to me and called me and trained me, etc., and sent me to be his apostle to the Gentiles, but I'm not one of the 12. So he's on par with them, but he is not, he's not among their number. And so, uh, so that's how we think of of Paul. And that's why Luke spends so much detail, so much time and spills so much ink explaining to us about the very specific Paul, uh, call of Jesus on Paul's life. And so, yes, Paul is an apostle, though he's, he's uh, uh, not among the 12. And secondly, so that's the first thing, Paul would, would have been excluded by these, these criteria. But the second thing also is that who else is excluded? Everybody. Nowadays, there are such things. There are people who claim to be apostles. 
I was surprised to learn when we were in Africa ministering not long ago that that's a big deal there. They actually had us uh, teach an extra lesson on apostleship because there are people, uh, I don't say right and left, but it's not uncommon in Africa for very powerful pastors to call themselves apostles. It adds to their luster of their ministry. And, uh, and so they call themselves apostles. And so um, they're excluded by these, by these criteria. They, did, they, did they go in and out with Jesus? Did they, were they with him from the time of John's baptism until the very end? No. Were they witnesses with them of the resurrection? Did they sit under Jesus' teaching during the 40 days when he was on this earth? No. And were they specially called by God in the same way that Paul was, demonstrated to us so many times in Scripture? No. So there is no such office nowadays as apostle in this sense by any means doesn't exist. And so everyone is uh, excluded. And I know there are churches. I know the LDS church has an apostle and that is not a biblical apostle. And there are apostles all over Africa and all over the rest of the world. And they are not apostles in this sense that that term is claimed so that it lends authority to their ministry. And it, it most certainly does not lend any authority to their ministry because they do not meet these criteria. And so they would be excluded. So that's, uh, that's the, the um, events that we have going on there in, in this portion, we see that uh, they needed to be going in and out with Jesus. They had to be a witness of the resurrection. And then this person had to be appointed by God. And sure enough, Matthias is appointed by God. This is, uh, this is the, the choice of the Lord by casting lots after having met criteria that this is who is to be the, uh, the 12th apostle. So finally, and here's an, an entire other sermon. And that is the approaching kingdom, right? A kingdom approaches. And if you think about it, you've read through Acts, you get to chapter 2, and that's where you have the Holy Spirit coming and the fireworks happen and massive things begin to take place that have been prophesied of. And, and you see wonderful birth of the church in many ways happening at, um, at, at Pentecost, which happens in chapter 2. And so uh, you have a kingdom that's approaching. It's approaching and it's about to start. And so... Our passage here talks about preparation for that kingdom coming. And the first preparation has to do with the fact that there need to be 12 witnesses to the kingdom. 12 witnesses. 11 won't cut it. There need to be 12 witnesses. So I ask the question, why? And I think the answer is found in Luke chapter 22. So you keep your finger in Acts chapter 1. Flip back to Luke chapter 22. And something that Jesus says there, speaking to the twelve. Speaking to the apostles, he says, I'll, I'll start in verse 28. This is, comes after a, disc- a discussion of who's the greatest, which that discussion seems to happen quite a bit. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That part of the ministry of these 12, the reason it needs to be 12 is because there are 12 tribes of Israel and part of the function of the ministry of these apostles is that they are to sit as judges in the biblical sense of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so there needs to be a one-for-one correspondence in order to represent their authority over the nation of Israel that they were to exercise. And so there are, there are only 11 
By the time you get to uh, this passage in Acts chapter 1, there are only 11. There needs to be a 12th. And even if you think about it, when that passage in Luke chapter 22 happened, Judas was already doing his thing. But there need to be 12 in place in order to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And so that's why it seems like uh, in Luke's thinking, and by the way, that was Luke that wrote that other one also, there, there need to be 12 in place in order to judge the nation of Israel. There, there had been... We're looking at a, a, a deep current in the Bible that's, that's kind of coming to a head right here. The first time I read through this, I thought, well, there need to be an, you know, the 12 again because Jesus said 12 and there are only 11 now, so let's fix that. But it's a whole lot deeper than that. And it goes back to the promise that God made to Abraham all the way back in, Acts, or in, in Genesis chapter 12. The promise to Abraham when he, when he called Abraham and he told him to go and I'm going to give you a land and leave your people and all that kind of stuff. And he makes certain promises to them, including the fact that you will be, uh, in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. In you, Abraham, through what I'm going to do in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not just this one nation that's going to come from you. It's going to be larger than you and not just the land that you're going to, that you're going to receive and all that. There's going to be a, a blessing through you that extends to Every family of the earth that extends far and wide, much beyond Abraham's own actual family. And so you have that promise being given. And the rest of the course of history through, the, through Genesis and, and all through the Old Testament, you see that being developed. We just covered the book of Exodus. And you see that the people grew in number to great numbers, but they were under persecution and that wasn't right. And so God leads them out of there and takes them eventually into the land. And he sets them up as a kingdom. He's given them his law and all of these things so that they would be a blessing to all people. And it ultimately culminates in their greatest king, which is King David. And King David wasn't always a great king. He was the pinnacle of their kings, but he himself was a, was a severely flawed man. And not only was he severely flawed, but he died. He ended up dying, and obviously his ministry, his blessing to, to the earth, could not continue for all time if he himself was going to die. And so God made a promise to David and said, You will have one of your offspring sitting on your throne, and his kingdom will never end. He'll reign forever. And so you have from the time of David looking forward, developing through the Old Testament, you have this blessing that's going to be going to all people. And who's that going to be in? Is it Solomon? No. It, it, was it the next person, the next king? Was it the, no, it's, and the, the prophets begin to prophesy about this blessing that's going to go forward, the fulfillment of this Davidic covenant, the promises that have been made to David that, that you're going to have an offspring in the future whose kingdom will never end. He'll sit on your throne for all time. And we find that by the time we get to the New Testament, it's Jesus. Jesus is the offspring of David. When you read through the beginning of the Gospels, you learn that he is a descendant of David. And, and what do people call him so often in the Gospels? Jesus, son of David. It's clear that he's a descendant of David and more than just a descendant. It's clear that he is the, the object of that promise. He is the one that fulfills 2 Samuel 7 and the Davidic covenant, the promise that God made to Abraham and was developed to David now finally points and is completed in Jesus so that Jesus is the source of this blessing that's going to be for all nations. He, he's the one who is the king who actually reigns in righteousness. He's the one who's the king who reigns eternally. And so it's all summed up in him. And now he is, he has paid the ultimate price. He's paid for sin. He's gone to the cross and God has raised him from the dead so that he's in their midst and he's teaching them. Now he's raised. He's going to live forever. And then he ascends to the father. And he says, I'm going to send my spirit upon you and he will empower you to go and take witness of this, of this blessing to all nations, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You will be the ones to carry the message of this blessing. And so 
in order for that to happen, there need to be 12. There need to be those who will, who will exercise authority over the nation of Israel, who will be ministers to the nation of Israel and beyond the nation of Israel in order for the fulfillment of this to happen. And so while they're waiting in Jerusalem, they're not just killing time. They're not just praying together. They're not just studying their Bible, but they are preparing for and getting ready for this empowering of the Holy Spirit so that they can go and take this message of this promise that was made back to Abraham being fulfilled to you. And if you think about our time, when we live now, we are the result, we are the product product of this gospel being proclaimed in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We live in Fallon, America. That's the end of the earth. <laughs> I mean, you could drive a little farther, but not much, you know. <laughs> We're pretty well the end. And we are the result of this gospel message being proclaimed. Salvation in Christ, this promise that was made to Abraham of blessing for all people coming now, being being fulfilled in a very specific way in Christ. And we are the ones who carry that message. And that message was brought to us. And so here we are at this point in Acts chapter one, seeing that they're on the verge. And can you imagine their thinking? They're thinking back. They just were, were scouring through scripture to find stuff about Judas. And, and as they're doing so, you think about, yeah, the, the promise to Abraham and, and yeah, the, the, the delivery from Egypt and, and, and yeah, King David, our great king, but actually he wasn't. And then he ended up dying. But the promise God made to him is fulfilled in Christ. And now here we are on the threshold, on the threshold of taking that message of promise from God to all the world. We better fill our ranks first. There need to be 12 of us, and so they fill their ranks. But they are on the verge, and there needed to be 12 witnesses to the kingdom. And what they were doing was testifying to the kingdom, testifying about the kingdom. You see, in, when Acts chapter 2 comes, just the next verse we get to, when Acts chapter 2 comes, you will see that what happens, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they begin to speak in different languages, and they're all preaching to the people who are there, gathered from all around the world. And so you'll see that the 12 are actually fulfilling that ministry of judging the nation of Israel because they are proclaiming the gospel to a representative portion of the nation of Israel right then when the Holy Spirit comes the first time. And so they are testifying to the kingdom. You remember David and the, and, and the promise made to him and the, and the promise that was made to Abraham? It's fulfilled now in your midst, people. And that's what their message is. And so they're testifying about the kingdom. And we're going to see throughout uh, the book of Acts that there's going to be great evidence that the kingdom actually is upon us. You're going to see that healings are happening. People are miraculously being healed. You're going to see that people are provided for. The poor are taken care of. You'll see the demons are cast out. You'll see that the kingdom of God is showing itself to be uh, evident in their midst. And if you remember the way Jesus started his ministry in Luke back in chapter 4, remember he went to Nazareth? went to church to the synagogue and he sat down and he he opened the scroll and he rolled to this place and read it. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he, he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you can see that in the ministry of Jesus, these things happen. And as we proceed through the book of Acts, you will see that in the ministry of the church, these things happen. The spirit has come. The good news of the gospel is proclaimed to the poor. Liberty is proclaimed to the captives. The blind receive sight. The oppressed are freed. The time of the Lord's favor is preached all through the book of Acts. And so the kingdom of God is in their midst. And these 12 will be the ones who bear that message. And so we get to take communion today. And how does communion connect with this? This is almost another sermon in itself. 
How does communion connect? That promise that was made to Abraham, and it was brought to kind of a partial, almost not quite, fulfillment in David, right? And so that God would make a promise that in it, David would have an offspring, and in that offspring there would be an eternal kingdom, and he would reign in righteousness, and he would be the, 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 the Messiah, the anointed one who would deliver his people from their sins. He would actually take their sins upon himself, and that happens in the person of Christ. So that we are not left on our own. We are not left in this world to, to expect some future blessing that God's going to hopefully take care of us. But that in Christ, our own sin has been punished. That we might be the recipients of that blessing. That we would be the recipients of that blessing promised all the way back in Acts chapter 12. And that's us. We get to receive that. And we get to receive that and celebrate that even here today. And so if the men who are going to serve communion would come forward.